You're listening to the Today's Wills and Probate podcast, one of the leading sources of information for the wills and probate sector. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todayswillsandprobate.co.uk and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Hello and welcome along to the latest edition of the Today's Wills and Probate podcast. Today I'm joined by Melinda Giles. Melinda is the founder and managing partner of Giles Wilson and you're going to tell us a little bit about yourself in a second Melinda but thank you very much indeed for joining the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. The discussion today is around your role as as managing partner. I think that's a really interesting point, particularly in the context of what 2023 looks like. We're going to talk about some of the work that you do at the Law Society as well, because we're particularly interested in what's happening there. And we're also going to talk about the rise in the number of reports of financial abuse in the press. But first, tell me a little bit about yourself and your role at the firm. Essentially, I'm a private client solicitor, and that's how I primarily consider myself. I I like being a solicitor, I like working in the law and in the world of private client. But my role ranges from seeing a client in a face-to-face or a virtual meeting and consultation, to running their case, to training younger solicitors, trainees and paralegals how to do the job to strategy and vision as a managing partner and of course financial management so quite a quite a variety in a day in a week and you've specialized in financial abuse for a little while tell us in the first instance what in your opinion is is the definition of it and how does it manifest that's a huge question to me financial abuse and the type of cases i deal with can be on a big scale I've done some enormous cases where those appointed even by the Court of Protection as deputies have basically stolen. Um, I think financial abuse is a a soft word for stealing, really, Um, have stolen from the very person that they're supposed to be protecting. So there is a criminal offence, fraud by abusive position. We rarely hear it called that and we rarely hear financial abuse referred to as a crime. It's not well understood by the powers that be. So as I say, I think cases can vary from very big ones, over £1 million I've dealt with that's been abused and that did end up in magistrates, well, in the Crown Court eventually, to what might not be initially noticed as financial abuse. You know, the carer, the family carer, somebody trusted within the family, helping themselves, convincing themselves that they're entitled to share that person's money or it's a reward for what they've done. The problem being that that was never agreed. There are also, sadly, you know, predators. There are professional financial abusers who identify people in the community who are alone and upon whom it's easy to prey. So there's very many different forms but it's in short it's taking money from people that from people who are vulnerable financial abuse is rarely the only abuse it's often tied up with emotional abuse mostly the person is feeling lonely 
They may even suspect that they are being financially abused, but are nervous to say anything because that may be that that person then leaves their life. So it's very far reaching. And it feels like there's a big crossover between what you're doing and, and what family lawyers do. Do you work with the, the family team at all on it? Traditionally, family lawyers are divorce and financial breakups in, in relationships. There isn't particularly a crossover in my, the way I deal with financial abuse because I tend to deal with it with people who have variable capacity to manage their own finances as opposed to a traditional domestic relationship where there's control going on uh, in people that to the outside world may appear equal. You touch on mental capacity there. It's an increasingly challenging subject given mm-hmm. The fact that we have this aging population, we're a more litigious society. How can we as lawyers better protect those in vulnerable situations? I wish I knew the answer. I think it's difficult as lawyers because we also believe in autonomy and human rights. So it's balancing risk with protection. So we may know somebody, come across a client. And this isn't only elderly people, of course, who have once had full capacity and for whom it's dwindling through the onset of Alzheimer's or another dementia or through a stroke. This is also younger people who have never had full capacity. They are also greatly at risk. And we want to enable and encourage independence. And so we're always afraid to exert too much protection and control. But I think that frank conversations, we must talk about this sort of thing more. It's important for us to say, you can make this choice at this time. There's recently been, of course, a new paper on lasting powers of attorney. Those of us working in the field of financial abuse are very concerned that lasting powers of attorney are made in favour of attorneys without full advice at times. They're enormously powerful tools and it's crucial that when they're made, those people appointing attorneys realise the extent of the power that they are giving their attorneys. The certificate provider has a duty to ensure that that person making the power understands that, isn't appointing an attorney because that attorney would be crossed if they weren't appointed. I think that would be a big start uh, for us as lawyers if we ensured that every, every one of us making lasting powers of attorney did so to the best of our ability and knew that the donor was depending upon us and give them that safe space to talk through their fears maybe. This is an education thing, isn't it? It's about being more proactive in terms of helping people understand what their responsibilities are, what the opportunities are. It is an education, an education of the public, really, that a power of attorney is a convenient and fantastic tool, but it, but it, it's much more serious than that. And we shouldn't concentrate on the convenience side of it without understanding exactly what it means. So I I do think the public needs to be encouraged to understand it. I've had many people talk to me about powers of attorney, as I'm sure that many other solicitors have as well. Oh, I can do the forms. I don't need you to do them. 
I can do the forms for my mum, it's fine. They're not just forms. These are legal documents. You've touched on the LPA white paper, which is a really interesting development, really harnessing technology. But I know that there are misgivings about the technology side of it. What are the risks in your view? And is that a view that's being mirrored at the Law Society and in some of the committees that you're sitting on? Yes, the Law Society shares my concerns, or I share theirs. We There's a fantastic group of specialist solicitors and policy advisors at the Law Society who have expressed their grave concerns about diminishing the education piece around lasting powers of attorney and focusing too much on the digitalisation aspect. None of us are anti-digitalisation and modernising and streamlining the system, which it requires. It requires improvement and we're all really supportive of that. But as I've said already, it is the risk to the vulnerable that is is concerning both in the making of the lasting powers of attorney i.e whether the person acting as certificate provider is really robust enough in in confirming their role but also the ongoing monitoring of the lasting powers of attorney and how they're used it's they're really difficult to undo once they're made so the law site has done a huge amount of work with that and I'm pleased to have been a part of it. The committee that I sit on that has placed me in that role is the Wills and Equity Policy Committee but there's also the Mental Health and Disability Committee and this has been a joint piece of work. I sit as the council member for, for private client work so I represent all private client solicitors and the other areas that we're working on are the delays at both the probate registry and the court of protection, um, which don't reflect well upon the work that solicitors are trying to do for clients. Uh, very difficult to explain to a client why something is taking, you know, maybe 16 or 20 weeks to even get an acknowledgement from. We recognise that the court service, the people employed there are working hard. Mm-hmm. It's the cuts, really. Uh, so we've been the law that is lobbying government for improvements, you know, in this functioning. The other main topics, I suppose, that we've been discussing are, well, we, we dealt with the extension to the digital signing of wills that was brought in during COVID, which was an interesting topic to be dealing with, if in a very frightening and horrible time for us all. And digital assets, of course, is an ongoing piece that perhaps won't ever find a solution to but the conversations are ongoing and more widely my role at the law society as a council member is is about engaging members of the profession across all disciplines trying to find out what solicitor members want of their membership body so if anybody listening wants to give me any messages they're very welcome (laughs) I like it. I like it. Thanks, Melinda. I think one of the challenges with particularly the technology piece is that the legislation doesn't keep up 
with where the technology is. Mm -hmm. And so if you take electronic signatures as an, as an example, across a lot of industries, they are now de facto ways of exchanging contracts, of, of, mm -hmm. of signing contracts. But we're still nervous about using them, particularly for some of the legal documentation. Why do you think that is? Why can't we get the legislation to catch up? I think it's all about risk. You know, if you electronically sign your tax return to your accountant, what is the risk? But if you are elderly and don't know how to do an electronic signature, somebody is helping you with that. Who is that person? Who has explained it to you? They're, they're quite different situations. So I think it's pretty obvious, really, that that is why the risk is, is far greater and why we're all concerned about it. It's the nature of the legal document. I love your call to action for people to get in touch with you to tell you what is happening in their world. What do you see 2023 looks like for private clients, listers, and, and what is it that the committees that you're on are, are really concerned about over the course of the next three to five years? I think solicitors sometimes get a bad press and look as if we're all fat cat lawyers making lots and lots of money sitting in our ivory towers, not really understanding what ordinary people want and need from a trusted advisor. The private client solicitors that I have met are not like that. They care deeply about the individual client that they're representing. They have a clear idea of who their client is and what and how they want to act in their best interest. I think that one of the biggest challenges is letting the public as a whole understand that and getting that message out there. You know, tr try your solicitor and try to see if you get on with them. They will be transparent on fees. Our regulatory body ensures that we do that. There are accredited specialised lawyers, so you will find a specialist. You can complain if they're not good enough. So I think public perception is one of our greatest challenges. I think, as I've mentioned already, digital assets and how we build those into being managed when we are either incapacitated or when we've died. My One of my personal issues is dealing with banks and financial institutions where UK finance and their member banks have their own set of guidance and individual guidance that isn't necessarily matches the legal framework in which we're working in. So I know many of us are concerned that somebody can go into a bank with a death certificate and walk away with the balance of the deceased person's account even though that's not what the will says. Very difficult to undo. Banks have a very good publicity campaign about dealing with scammers and frauds, and I know that they do deal with those well. So it's a sad reality that some elderly people or vulnerable people, should I say, are scammed, and the banks do compensate them, from my experience, very well. It's not really that that worries me. It's the lack of understanding and service given to genuine attorneys who are really trying to help and support people who need help. It's following the rule of law when it comes to probate. I could go on a lot more, but hopefully that's enough work for us for the next couple of years. 
<laughs> I think that's very fair. And what about yourself? You're the founder of a law firm. You're the current managing partner on and any given day of the week. You could be doing any number of different jobs. What's changed in the time that you've been leading your firm? And what do you see as your challenges over the sort of course of the next three to five years? Happily, things have changed a huge amount in the 25 years plus that I've been leading Giles Wilson, but more so from before, where the world of law was primarily male. It's no longer that. Where your solicitor having family or other caring responsibilities was something that was hidden from their clients' view, so that we all were rigid machines that were just there every day working. It's very pleasing. I think that there's so much more diversity in the law and that those who perhaps never even dreamt that they could be a solicitor are not only now practising as solicitors, but rising in seniority and management. The way of managing is also very different. We manage in a very inclusive way. So we are, as of 2022 July, we are an employee ownership trust. So our company is now owned by the employees and although there are still there's still management and leadership it's a much more open and transparent way of managing and working I don't find that a challenge I find that exciting in terms of my own challenges are too many to mention I'll just how long have we got (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) No, I think the future is exciting, both for Giles Wilson as a firm, but I also think the world of private client work, which, as I say, 25 years plus, and I think there's much more law being done in the world of private client. There's many more practitioners now, as more members of the public own property, have money, increase mental capacity. So it's a great area to be working in, and I wouldn't work in any other and what do you see as happening in the world of court of protection and mental capacity over that time? Because that's that's that feels like it's got a lot of a lot of change coming. I think it's just going to get busier and busier. I think many more resources are required. I think potentially there's room for some more changes in terms of maybe accreditation within the world of property and finances. There's a lot more personal applications. People are entitled to make their own applications to the court, but they, that does mean a different way of working. I think that solicitors working in that field, similarly to in the family courts, it's called unbundling, isn't it, where we do a part of the work. Maybe, and I'm finding that, somebody may have made their own application and then it's contested and then they're not sure where to go next. Um we must be prepared to help clients in that way without telling them off for doing it themselves in the first place because that they are entitled to do that and very often can do it because the, the process has been made simpler for straightforward cases. I really like your point about unbundling because yes we are seeing that much more in legal services listeners to today's wills and probate will know that we have a conveyancing publication we have a family publication we see the same in those disciplines there's an almost a commoditization of some of the legal services that are delivered how does that impact the community feel within wills and probate because people like to work quite closely together don't they 
Mm. When I first worked in the private client world, I was the only private client solicitor in the team that I was in at that time. You know, and that was really make a will, put it in the cupboard, then the person would die and you did the probate. And it was quite a lonely world to to work in because unlike a conveyancer or a divorce lawyer, there was not a solicitor on the other side. So you didn't have another lawyer engaged on the same matter to, to communicate with. You just had your client and there was no chatting through the case as such. The beauty of communities such as today's wills and probates, such as the organisations within the law society and we, and other, other private client communities, is that you meet other private client solicitors and you have conversations and you share advice and tips, whether that be in virtual chats, face-to-face, all, all sorts of network events. I think that they're really important. And going back to the point of unbundling, you know, perhaps... Private client solicitors found themselves in a conflict sometimes. Perhaps you've made a will for Mr. X and then he dies and his son and his daughter don't agree or require separate advice. And they might ask you to recommend somebody. Or we're all aware, you know, the increase in cross-border work. I don't do cross-border work myself, but it's good to know someone who does. Or going back to lasting pounds of attorney and making them for vulnerable people. You know, I'm based in London and Essex. If a client in Newcastle or Cornwall requires face-to-face appointment, it's good to have a network of somebody that you trust and you know to be good to go and act for that client for you. And it, it goes around and we support each other. And I think that that's a big development I've seen in the years that I've been working and one that I hope grows because it, it helps us all. It's very kind of you to talk about today's wills and probate and the community that we've created, because that's something that we're really proud of, actually. We were one of the first, if not the first publication to bring both the will writing and the solicitor community together. And I hope we've fostered some really positive relationships there as well. We've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Melinda. It's been a delight to chat. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. And I think we've covered some interesting topics. We probably could have done a podcast on almost (laughs) all of the topics themselves, couldn't we? So we'll have to have you back on. Thank you. The Today's Wills and Probate podcast is available on your preferred podcast provider. It's also available on todayswillsandprobate.co.uk. My thanks to Melinda. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you again soon. You're listening to the Today's Wills and Probate podcast, one of the leading sources of information for the wills and probate sector. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todayswillsandprobate.co.uk and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.